I had a, I had a similar experience. I was I was frogging, and that little homemade boat of mine, the rudder fell off of it. And I'm I'm in water past my waist, and I found that old rudder, and I'm sticking it back through the pulley, and I'm trying to get a cotter pin back through the cable guide, and so I can get it hooked back up. And uh, behind me, I was this is like one o'clock in the morning. I'm a couple of miles back in the swamp, and and uh, I hear this roar behind me, and I thought it was a bear. And before I knew it, I was standing back in a boat. I don't know how I got there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard it. Heard, heard an alligator roar. And just like that, we've got another episode of Open Action with John McLean brought to you by Arms Corps Precision. I am, of course, John McLean, and this guest that I have on is someone who many of you probably know um, if you're anywhere related to the firearms industry and probably you might have heard his name even if you're not in the firearms industry because this guy has literally been winning championships since uh let's see since before i went to high school <laughs> for certain i've had the pleasure of shooting against him i've had a pleasure of shooting with him and uh jerry michalek thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate it my pleasure good to be here yep so just gonna, I'm just going to go over some of the things that uh, I was able to look up and find about you. So you hold five official world records, and then you have 15 unsanctioned records, meaning that they were things that you accomplished and no one else has been able to accomplish, but the official world record people weren't there to witness it, right? Um, yeah, yeah, they were just they were, they were just YouTube fun videos, you know, stuff like, like that. Yeah, like like uh, the fastest, uh, what, five or six rounds out of a 50 BMG Barrett uh, rifle and stuff like that. Yeah, that was a fun video. That was, it that, was like... unexpected. that was unexpected, by the way. <laughs> it looked like it was a lot of fun for sure. <laughs> I, it also looked like it could probably get expensive really quick. <laughs> it is. You know, ammunition is, is one of the biggest uh, factors in everything that that I do. So, yeah. Now, you also had, had the Shootout Lane TV show on Outdoor Channel. Is that still currently uh, filming and airing? or No, we had we had a five-year run, and uh, that's over with now. So we, we, we're back to YouTube and then uh, competitions and, yeah, staying busy. Perfect, perfect. Okay. Well, and I, I feel like the YouTube channel could probably – I, I kind of like that a little better when you're doing a YouTube channel versus, like, a TV show because it's really up to you about the creative side that you want to accomplish. Whatever it is you want to film, you're like, hey, let's film it. But when you have yeah. a TV show, especially when it's reality, like, you know, I, reality with air quotations because, like, I, I know how some reality shows are not at all reality. <laughs> You know, haven't haven't done it for five years, and uh, now when I watch every, everything else on TV, I know how it's staged and what to look for. It, it takes all the fun out of it. Uh, <laughs> you're no, you're absolutely right. My my dad, when he was still alive, we used to talk about how he loved. Um, what was the show? It was like the it was the moonshining show. It was about the guys that made moonshine and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, "Oh, this this show is so fantastic!" And I was like, "Hey, dad." With the camera crew and the sound guys and the lighting guys, like how difficult do you think it would be for the police to find them if they were really breaking the law? And he was like, "Well, that takes all the fun out of it." <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. What 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 I find interesting talking about lighting, uh, having worked around these guys a little bit, you can tell when something is off, and 
the shadows and the, the lighting under the cap. And yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Once you've been around it just a little bit, you can start to see little flaws and uh, discrepancies that uh, shouldn't have been there. So yeah, and and you know it's it's interesting in the fact that like when when I was doing Three Gun Nation, I mean, I, it was actually the same episode that you and me were were competing against Three Gun Nation that year, and they were doing like the. Okay. Um, the promotional videos for the intro. So it's like all of our beauty shots for the cameras just turning yeah. around us one by one and stuff. Right. And yeah. they had, they had the big reflector screen that was reflecting the sunlight up into our face. So that, yeah, if we were wearing a hat or something like that, there were no right. shadows, but like yeah. I could, I, and I mean, I know it's already hard enough for me to keep my eyes open cause I'm half Asian, but I, for the life of me <laughs> could not keep my eyes open because of how bright it was shining up into my face. And you're just like, God, how do, how do actors and stuff do this full time? Like, how do they not go blind earlier from, uh, you know, having constant bright lights in the face and stuff, but. Part of the deal. Gotta live, gotta live with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the truth, isn't it? All right. So you have obviously been shooting for a long time and um i know there's probably a lot of people that if they had a chance to sit down and chat with you they'd ask you all sorts of questions so i'm going to try and cover some of that but let's okay. talk about the first thing i want to cover or ask you about was um was what 1989 is when you decided to quit your full-time job and just try and pursue competition shooting is that right. correct correct yeah 90, 90 yeah. the end of 89 but the beginning of 90 yeah so, so what did the shooting world look like in that time frame? Because, like, I, I mean, I know when I came on board, you know, USPSA was still, obviously, a, it was a, a organization that had existed. It, it had existed for a while. There were rule sets and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. you, there's, there's you and a handful of other guys that I, I would almost kind of consider like the pioneers of speed shooting and competition shooting. Because, like, the stuff we do now is stuff that you guys weren't taught when you were coming up in the firearms world and learning how to shoot, you know, stuff like the weaver stance or the one handed shooting and stuff like that. That was yeah. all. So what was the shooting world like? What did it look like when, when you decided to, to uh, pursue shooting full time? Well, it looked like, well, to be honest with you, Rob Latham, of course, was the, was the actual premier shooter of the time. When I got hired on with Smith in 1990, <clears throat> he and Brian Edis, Kind of set the pace for the whole United States. Uh, his shooting style, both you know, when you said Rob Latham, uh, Brian Enos, you know, was was the next thing you were going to say. <clears throat> they uh, pretty much dominated the USPSA style of shooting, and it was kind of interesting that they they started a new trend in how to hold a gun and stance, and you know, they got they got away from the Weaver stance, and uh, yeah, so things were really evolving the sport of pistol shooting. I was, as a matter of fact, I was watching a, an Army training film the other day on, on YouTube. It was produced, I think, right before the Second War. And it was showing how to hold a 1911 in line with your arm and your point shoot and all this. And it's, it's a very radical difference now to how to shoot a handgun until, you know, uh, what, the, what the military was trying to do back in forever. Uh, so it was a big evolution of style and also the expectation of the gun to meet the performance of the shooter. The quality of the magazines. That's one thing the 1911 has always lacked with a good magazine. It went to Chip McCormick and Wilson and those guys actually sat down and made a good magazine that the whole 1911 platform was even viable for competition. I know that sounds kind of radical, but the magazine made the gun. So mm. things evolved, you know, then they had electronic sites 
Uh, when I think of electronic psych, I think of Jerry Barnhart. Uh, uh -huh. He won the USPSA Nationals. I want to say in '90 with the with the Red Dots, if I, if I recall that right. It, it, it was in Barry, Illinois. I was at the Nationals that year, uh, somewhere in the '90s. But Jerry showed up with that electronic sight and won, and that really set the pace. If you wanted to stay with Jerry, you had to ditch the metallic sights, and uh, you wanted to race, you had to race with Jerry. You know, so it was pretty cool. Well, and, and that was that's interesting too because you know uh, the site back then was not the red dot sites that we have now. It was like it was almost like something this size <laughs> sitting on top of a pistol, and you're just like, "Whoa, my gosh! Look at that honking beast of like I think I I want to say it was a Tasco maybe. There, was yeah, there was, yeah, Tasco was was some of the first products. Everybody had to get them rebuilt. I forgot the guy's name. or used to rebuild them. He, he would hardwire them. Uh, basically, go through all the electronics and try to bulletproof them. Uh, so they were near, they were nowhere near the reliability of what we have now in the size. Like you mentioned, the actual size of the product has drastically changed. The uh, everything is evolving. The actual reliability of the guns. Uh, what, well, kind of give you an idea with those uh, early generation of a red dot. We used to practice with the dot off because a lot of times it would blink in the middle of a stage of fire or go off. And you had to finish just by basically looking through the tube and using it like a peep sight. <laughs> oh my gosh! Was, yeah, you do what you That's... have to do, you know. So <laughs> things. Yeah. Have so you were you were preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Yeah, it's funny. That's all, you, that's all you could do. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you when you decided to go pro, um, so you quit your job and you decided to pursue shooting. What yeah. were the um, what were the big like matches or organizations that were around that you were being a part of? Well, uh, the only three gun back then was Soldier of Fortune, and we I used to shoot that competition not necessarily to uh, to support Soldier of Fortune, but it was a three gun match, and I, I like to shoot all three guns, so I shot that. Uh, I want to say I started shooting Soldier of Fortune competition back in the eighties, in the mid eighties. Uh, bowling pins was really big. Uh, second chance bowling pin matchup in uh, Central Lake, Michigan. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but that was, I haven't heard of that match, but I've heard of bowling pin matches. Yeah, that was that was the uh, holy grail of pin shooting. Uh, my buddy and I from back home, when I first started shooting, one of the things we wanted to win guns. I mean, guns were expensive, so we trained for bowling pins. And some of the first matches I shot, as a matter of fact, right here in uh, in Arkansas. Uh, I remember when, when there was an Arkansas, we would, we would shoot uh, bowling pin matches. And uh, that's where the first time I saw Bill Wilson was back in the 80s. And Mike Plaxco was uh, shooting bowling pins. And, uh, and second chance was we could win guns. The first year I went up there, I think I won like eight guns. Uh, a couple of oh. Colt Pythons and uh, H&K rifles. And so it was, he had an excellent prize table. You could shoot for like nine days. And his motto back then was shoot to your puke. I know it's, <laughs> but that was Richard Davis. Richard Davis of Second Chance Body Armor held that match uh, to pay back to the, the uh, police officer that used his vest on duty. Uh, okay. Then it, it evolved into a match that was open to the public. And that's, uh, I remember the last year I shot it, it was in 90, 98, I think it was, won 17 guns. So. I think 13 of them were ARs. So it was a good, it was a good week for me. 
<laughs> I had fun. <laughs> now, the the bowling pin matches, explain a little bit about what that kind of a match breakdown was. Because, like, you know, USPSA, it's basically yeah. 12, 15, 16 stages, three days, you go and shoot it. But what, what consisted of a bowling pin match? Well, a bowling pin match was uh, you had a five-pin event. So you had a you had a table, a steel table, and I want to say it was 25 feet from where you were at behind a rail. And you started with the gun in your hand, uh, started on the rail, and on the timer you came up and you shot those five bowling pins. You had to drive them back; they were a foot apart, edge to edge, five of them on a the table, and you had to drive them back three feet off the table. And when the last one hit the ground, that's when the time stopped. So the ammunition had to be powerful enough to push that bowling pin three feet. And we used to shoot uh, 210 power factor Oof. With, a, with a 38 special. <laughs> Yikes. That's uh, that's zipping pretty pretty and, decent. Yeah, some of the power factors were 230. Are, you know, so we shot 45 ball ammunition with minimal. So on command, you had to come up and shoot five pins to the last one to hit the ground in under three seconds. Uh, so it was a lot of horsepower. Really taught you how to hold a, a really high caliber handgun and shoot fast under pressure. It was it was a lot of fun. I think back on it now. Uh, I found some of those old bowling pin loads I had. They were two hundred uh, lead round loads out of the thirty eight special. I think they were doing eleven forty or somewhere around oh. that eleven hundred. So they were cooking pretty good. It might have been a little bit over pressure, but the guns held up and uh, did the job and uh, won a lot of guns with it. So. Can I say? <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize because I was most of the bowling pin matches I've ever seen are the more modern days where they just kind of you just knock the bowling pin over. I didn't realize you had to actually knock it off the table. You had to knock it off the table. Yeah, that's what made it fun. The the power factor, and they had different events. They had a they had a uh, a mixed doubles a man and woman event. They had uh, I think the last year you had it, it was twenty twenty something different events you could shoot: submachine gun, light rifle, twenty two rim fire. A submachine gun event so a lot, a lot of different events he's still holding it again in central lake he started it back a couple of years ago and they, they hold it in june every year i think the second week of june and i haven't been back to it uh i don't know if my hands can handle that power factor like it did when i was a young man <laughs> okay so so i know jerry's saying that but let me let me tell you something about jerry that i learned real quick and this was when again our three gun nation days we we were shooting the, the TV show together, and we went up to the first stage. I ended up having a penalty, and Jerry ended up having a penalty. But it, I think Jerry ended I, I think he ended up with two penalties, which gave you technically the slowest time after penalties. And then we had to get to the uh, eliminator, and it was a pistol eliminator. Hmm. And prior to the match starting, we we'd sat down and chatted for a while, and I was asking you if if you had as much fun shooting now as you did when you first got started, and and you proceeded to explain how it's just things are changing your eyesight's constantly changing you had like five or six different <laughs> sets of glasses depending on the shooting conditions and how your eyes were working that day and all that kind of stuff so you went on this big old rant about how your eyes sucked and <laughs> and then you were like i said oh by the way I, I should probably go put those lenses on before we start filming thanks for reminding me so we get to the shoot off or the the elimination round which is with the pistol so you're shooting at night with artificial lighting and using your iron sights, right. you got to go up first and shoot. I was like a fourteen steel array, 
and you proceeded to shoot it in like 7.8 seconds. 14 steel targets in artificial lighting condition with iron sights and your quote unquote bad eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a, I, I bet you could probably still handle the gun just fine, even though you're a little bit older than you were back then. I'm not, I'm, I don't believe it when you say things like that anymore because, you know, the, the funniest thing about that season of Three Gun Nation. I watched all the other episodes because we were the very first episode. It was okay. uh, it yeah. was you, uh, Horner, and myself that were in the first episode, and then all the other pros were in the, in the other like seven episodes. Yeah. I went and I looked through the other episodes. Mm -hmm. The next fastest time on the pistol eliminator was like twelve point six seconds. So you almost had you had the fastest time by almost half of the next fastest time of the pistol eliminator. <laughs> Shooting your iron sights with your quote unquote bad eyes. Well, so. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll tell you a secret to shooting. Uh, trigger pull is more important than side alignment. That's what I hear. I, <laughs> I I still apparently don't know how to just execute. You know, it's sometimes what luck is, it? is, is your friend. Yeah, I, I think it was Voight. Uh, Mike Voight told me a long time ago. He was like, you know, shooting is a very simple thing, but it's not easy. And I'm like, that's probably one of the most truest things I've ever heard in my life. I've always referred to it as simply hard. <laughs> yeah, yes, very much so. And it's, and it's funny that, yeah, when you, when you talk about the aspect of marksmanship and aiming and hitting your targets, how you, you really just want your brain to shut up. Because if your brain is screaming and yelling at you, go now, shoot now, pull the trigger, like that's how we start getting all those yanks and stuff. So it's just like... When when I see people doing that, it's like, okay, let, let me explain to you how it's it's not the slowest trigger pull. It's not about pulling the trigger super slow. It's about just pulling it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a good Brian Edis story while you're talking, while you, you, you brought that memory up. We were at Second Chance one year. Brian was there, and we were signing up to shoot a side event, and the waiting line for the registration must have been an hour long, and he and I were standing there, in, you know, waiting our turn to register, and... Uh, I was asking Brian, you know, what were you, what do you, what do you, what do you do when you shoot? What do you, what's your end goal? You know, and he says, well, I, I like to think of my gun hanging on a balloon and it's just suspended in the air, and I will it to go this way and I will it to go that way, and, and I just watch. And I don't try to make anything happen. I just watch it happen. So anyway, we talked and like, you know, for about an hour, and I finally got up online, and this side match was nine pin. They had nine bowling pins a foot from the back of the table, and you had a nine mil handgun. And uh, the record on that that anybody had ever shot was 2.7 seconds. And after being on the after, after talking to Brian for an hour and just you know chilling out and actually you know relaxing, I got up on the line, and my my mental thought I still remember it very clear was just just shoot one shot per pin and just get a time and just you know go from there. And I shot and uh, I thought to myself, well that was a good steady you know run, and a bunch of guys behind me started hollering. And I had tied the record at a two seven, but to me it felt like a four second. Just relaxed, didn't try to make it happen, just watched it happen. So I had a Brian Enos moment there. Is what I'm trying to say. It's kind of fun. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. the The perception of time is such a trick to people. Like I try and teach that with people when I when I instruct them now with with USPSA and stuff. Is the idea of like, look, you. You might feel like you're going really fast, and then when you get done, yeah, 
you find out that you're two seconds slower than me. So I, I've actually had times where, like, after we're done with a match, I let someone shoot something. And I'm like, look, I, I want you to shoot this stage again, but I don't want you to try and go fast. I want you to do just just go and do everything correctly. Like, know with confidence that you're pulling everything yeah. off that you need to. And when they get in that mindset of, like, oh, it felt like they get done shooting and they look back, like, with disappointment, like, that was so slow. And I'm like, actually, you were a second faster than what you did in the match. So... And some of the, some of the stage wins that I've had yeah, from nationals, yeah, right. um, Hanga nationals, have been stages where I was just like, "Oh my gosh, I'm taking forever!" <laughs> and then I get done, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I ended up in a second. Yeah. I had the fastest time by a full." Oh, second. you get to the end, and it was so easy. You go like, "Did I skip a target?" <laughs> yes. You know, and like the all rows say, "Shoot it if you were finished." But you go, "Well, am I?" <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've found that, yeah, it's like, uh, it's, it's such a great feeling and it's such a terrifying feeling at the same time when that happens to you. Cause you're like, uh, but the good thing is here's, I, I always find that there's one indicator that I can always trust on for the most part, I'd say 90% of the time you can trust on it's how the RO says, if you're finished unloading, show if, clear. Yeah. because if they go, if you're finished, if you're finished unloading, show clear, you're like, okay, I'm good. If you're finished on the, Oh God, what did I screw up? I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm just going to run into the RO quick and, and get a reshoot and say he was in the way. So, yeah. All right. Now, so obviously you were shooting bowling pins, which sounds like you were shooting a, a 1911 platform. When did you decide to kind of dedicate yourself and your, your craft or techniques and all that kind of stuff? When did you swap over to revolver and really make that like well, that... your... Uh, that was revolver. Yeah, I oh, always the, shot pins with the bowling yeah. pins. Thirty-eight special. Oh, thirty-eight special. And it was a kind of an evolution because when we were shooting in Arkansas, they wouldn't allow a forty-four caliber handgun. It was tearing the pins up too much. So my buddy and I came up with a thirty-eight special load. Yeah, to shoot a two two hundred uh. grain bullet. Which was actually better than a forty-five because the sectional density of that bullet is so much better than a forty-five or a forty-four. It want to go. It wants to go in a straight line longer, without deflecting. So mm -hmm. if you if you caught that pin one bullet width in, side of the pin body, it would stay in the bowling pin and wouldn't ricochet out, and you'd get all the energy to drive it off the table. So it was actually a plus, and we learned it by accident. Yeah. Okay. So see my. I'm a 1911 yeah. guy, so you said 38, and I immediately went to no, super, no. not special. Okay, so you were shooting revolvers yeah, that whole time with yeah. 210 pounds. Another interesting thing, tell you how, how long ago I started shooting. You said they used to have a ballistic pendulum. I don't know if you ever saw one. And your ammunition, it was, uh, a, it was like a, a plate on a, on a rod, and you shot it, and it had a little needle, so when you shot the plate, it would, it would pivot, and you had to set that needle at such a point that it, the ammunition would be acceptable power level to shoot to match. Ah, so it was like a early chronograph. Yeah, so what was interesting was <laughs> that 38 special with that long 200 grain bullet would hit that plate. Now, you're not, you're not going to think this, is, this has any truth to it, but like you take a 200 grain 45, it's about as long as it is wide. So when it hits that plate, mm -hmm. the energy dissipates really quickly, and it doesn't hardly move the pendulum. That long 38 bullet would hit that plate with less velocity, and it would push it further with less velocity, <laughs> and you could shoot the match with a, a lighter load. Ah, yeah. 
yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Stay on target longer. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. See, and that's the kind of stuff that like you you guys had to figure out, but now it's something that you can explain and and there's track record of it and so it, it could become like the new normal versus you guys having to figure out like oh apparently a bigger bullet is not better yeah so one, another thing when, we, when we're holding our matches back in uh, Thibodeau Louisiana uh that, that was before you had the electronic timers so you had, you had two stopwatches you had two guys all rowing you had two guys timing I'll take it back and you, and you had an all row a safety all row just like we have now so the two guys would be standing there with the stopwatches and the all row would clap these two aluminum Simple, basically, shoot it ready, stand by, and clap it, and you start the timer, and every stage had a stop plate. Didn't matter if it was all paper, it had mm -hmm. a stop plate. When you shot the stop plate, the two timers would stop their watches and compare the times, and you would get the average of the two times per stage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so... That's old, that's old that's... school. That's 1970s stuff. Oh, my goodness. See, all, all the stuff that we just take advantage of because it's like so yeah. normal for us to have something as simple as yeah. a shot timer. It, it, yeah, it, 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 it just didn't have them. Didn't have a shot timer. You just had to hope that you had an RO that wasn't so hung over that the reaction Well, time you get was what slow. you get. <laughs> <laughs> get what you get. Like most things in life. Yeah. It's fine. That's it very true. That's very it was, true. Yeah, it was fine. Yep. Okay. So, so you're doing revolver this whole time, um, and then you start like because I remember you know watching old episodes of like the Hot Shot Show. Like you would go to to Steel Challenge and shoot open with a revolver. What what was your mindset behind sticking with the revolver versus jumping from platform to platform? Was it to avoid having to cross train as far as different trigger pulls and uh, stuff like that? Not I use it as a as a warm up mostly for the revolver division. Mm. You know so. Oh, yeah, okay. Steel Challenge was always held in Piru, California. I think that right? Yeah, Piru. And uh, the yeah. lighting there was so different than it is in Louisiana with all that light-colored background. To me, it was like shooting a polar bear in a snowstorm. It was so different in Louisiana. Everything is so bright green here when we when we practiced on the ranges of dark uh, berms. And when you went there, it didn't matter what I had on my revolver. It was never bright enough. And always seemed that I, I would not follow the dot in between targets because of the lighting and uh, I never went up there in advance basically to practice on a facility so I used that uh, open a bit that revolver and open division as a warm-up oh okay that makes sense you know, you know so yeah that is something that I've, I've had to get used to since I moved to Missouri was the idea of like um you know, from Vegas, yeah, the, it was a desert landscape, background all the time, white targets yeah. like that. I, visually, I was used to seeing that all the time. And then yeah. coming out here, I'd set targets up for training, and I'd be like, whoa, that's this is a little different. There's more contrast. There's there's more, you know, sure. a bright green background with a brown target in front of it kind of makes it stick out. But in Vegas, a, a dark brown target in front of a light brown yeah. <laughs> stuff was, was a little different, but it was what I was so used to. And now I actually find when I go to back to the desert, I'm like, oh God, I used to shoot this all the time. This sucks. <laughs> it does. It does. After you check, it's, it's amazing what the what the backdrop will give you, as far as confidence on the first shot and how you track the gun into the target and everything. It makes a huge difference. And uh, 
Yeah, KC uh, Azubio, you know, that was his range. He, he was born, I think, on the range. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so when he shot in those conditions, you know, he, it was that was his that was his game. There, he, he posted some good scores. Yeah, do you still 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 challenge pretty often, or I haven't I haven't shot it since USPSA took it over. Mm, that's when right. Mike and Mike had it. Own, yeah, when Mike and Mike had it, the prize tables were so good, and all the side matches, you know, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Plus, uh, I was shooting three guns so heavy, I kind of just kind of went to three gun. So, mm. and I mean, three gun is pretty much kind of where you're still predominantly heavy in like you're not because you for a while there you actually what was the record you were holding for consecutive uh icor revolver wins i had, I had 21 21 21 wins. yeah and but but now it seems to me like you anytime i see you shooting things it's mostly three gun is that kind of what you're exclusively doing now like you don't shoot any yeah. uspsa or anything yeah i haven't i haven't shot a revolver match in 10 years uh, matter of fact the, the icor uh, my friends were leaving Fire Corps just this morning, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, yeah, that's been 11, 10, 11 years. I've been to Three Gun. The sponsorship in Three Gun got better, and I wanted to pursue that aspect of it, to be honest, you know, with, with Mossberg and the other companies. And uh, it worked out worked out pretty good uh, that way. So, And, and you know, it's funny because I, I didn't – I hadn't shot Three Gun in a while. And then – I decided this past year that I was going to try and shoot multi-gun nationals again. So I started kind of working, training and all kind of stuff. And then we, I saw you at the, the zombies in the heartland match. Yeah. yeah. And then I shot multi-gun nationals and I didn't realize, or I, I had forgotten how much stuff you have to haul with you all the time and keep track of and keep up and running and operational and functional and taking care of. And I was oh, yeah. just like, Man, I don't know if I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, and I, not to say I'm I'm old by any means. I'm I'm only 37, but I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine doing this when I get even older. And then I looked at you, just still whooping everybody's butt, and I'm just like, I got no excuse. I have no excuse whatsoever. What are you? What am I complaining about, John? Shut up. Jerry can do it. You can too. Come on. <laughs> back back when I was your age, they had a gentleman by the name of Ken Tap. I don't know if you if you remember Ken Tap. I can't say I've heard that name before. He just passed away this year, unfortunately. He was in his 90s. He was a little thin guy. Uh, first time I saw him was at Second Chance. And, uh, yeah, Ken shot for Tasco for a number of years. He was sponsored by Tasco. And he was uh, he was about 30 years old than I was at the time, or about that. And Ken would sit you on your butt at Second Chance. He would show up. Man, he was, he was ready to roll. But he... He was one of them guys. I always joked about Ken Tapp. He, I got to be a good friend with Ken. I had a lot of respect for his ability. Matter of fact, tell you how tough Ken was. He raised a family uh, living on an island off the coast of Alaska, hunting and fishing for a living. Built, his own, built his own cabin, raised the kids out there. Uh, yeah, tough dude, man. He was he was a real deal. He used to shoot. To give you an idea how good he was with a handgun, he'd shoot ducks on the fly to bait his traps with with a twenty-two pistol. Oh, if anybody would have told me that story other than Ken Tapp, I would, you know, I would have looked at him kind of cross-eyed. But Ken Tapp would show up at matches with the ugliest equipment and set me on my butt with just, <laughs> with just pure, pure ability. And I had a lot of admiration for Ken. Good guy. Good guy. 
he earned it. He earned it. He earned his match experience by shooting in the field, you know. So yeah. So he'd run a trap line. I'll tell you how how tough old Ken was. He'd run a trap line uh, in Alaska on his own for two weeks and live off of what he caught in the traps. Yeah, that's that's a whole different breed of person it's to be able to <laughs> accomplish stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, got, yeah, good good guy. So, good guy. Shooting ducks on the fly with the twenty-two, Jesus! I have a hard time hitting them with a shotgun, and that's flinging like six hundred pellets at him at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Ken was uh, Ken was a real deal. I always joked about Ken. I said you could you could lock him in a phone booth if you're old enough. Remember what a phone booth was? Yeah. And come back six months later, and you could he would probably gain weight and find a way to make a living in there, you know. But uh, yeah, <laughs> he was self. He was he was very independent. Uh, when you when you look at people like that, they can do a lot with minimal. Yeah, and and not complain. And yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he taught me a lot about being uh, being independent and tough and uh, earn your mark, you know. So that can tap. Well, and there's something is to be said about people like that too, because like it's you know the the older I get, I find that um, stuff matters less to me. Like, oh, uh, you have you seen the new Mercedes? No, I didn't even care about the old one. Like, yeah. I, I, you want to get a new car? Like, you want to upgrade your car? No, mine works perfectly fine. Like, it gets me from point A to point B. It does it safely. Like, what else do I need? Like, I don't, I don't need, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you have, when you have people that that can, it, it's almost like that. Uh, it's a sense of freedom that the person has when you're in a state of mind where you're just kind of like, no, I don't, I don't need anything. Everything that I need, I have. Therefore, I'm thankful and grateful. And yeah. and uh, when when you have someone like that, it's very hard to um, get on uh, not not to get on their bad side, but like it's it's hard to frazzle them, right? Like they they've got that kind of mindset of like, nope, I'm here. I got everything I need. There's yeah. nothing I can do. It's it's kind of a, a uplifting thing to be able to to have people like that in your life because you it kind of rubs off on you, right? Like you, you see that kind of. Um, interaction with that person has with just the world in general being like ah, i got everything i need you're just like yeah you know what i got tough. everything i need too uh he's just a tough dude you, you mm. know you weren't gonna break him if you wanted to out shoot you if you wanted to you know <laughs> matter of fact i tell you a ken tap story second chance again we a lot of get a lot of, a lot of second chance stories uh, we were shooting for money during the week i think it was a couple thousand dollars or whatever and uh, they did it like three times during the week. And this was one of the one of the money shoots. And uh, it got down to Ken Tapp and I. And I folded up on the last run. He beat me. And I looked at him. He reached over and he shook my hand. And he looked me in the eye and he said, thank you. And I went, hmm. That's exactly right. I gave it to Ken Tapp. So the second time we, we met again, it was, it was for a $5,000 cash shoot off. And uh, I got him on the last table. So... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, uh, and I told him thank you. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of fun. But uh yeah, when you, when you when you think when you think of your losses that you do, you always think about how you gave it away. And uh mm -hmm. and I, I know he I know he said it with 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 respect, but at the same time he was telling me that uh I actually gave it to him. Like he didn't earn it. So I had to, right. give, I had to give him credit on that one. He he said what he what he what, what he thought. And it was taken in that manner. So I gave it to him. You know, you always, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Anyway, you're absolutely right. Like when you look at when you look at the history of people that have won national level matches, uh, very rarely do you find the person that won went, 
first place, 27th place, second place, 50th place, yeah. you know, eighth place, yeah. 17th. It's the person that went second, fourth, third, eighth, sixth, yeah. third, like the consistency top, yeah. top winner. Yeah. And yeah, it comes down to like, I, you, you have to shoot your best game and then just see if it holds up against everybody else. But yeah. to chase people or to try and chase a time, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. I think new shooters probably have it the worst is when, when they feel like they're racing the clock instead of understanding that the clock's just running with you. I, the uh, clock will stop when you're done shooting. I call it a boat anchor. Anytime you show up in a match with, a, with any kind of an expectation, you already mm -hmm. dropped anchor. Now you got to pull it. Yeah, it's you, there's so much truth to that uh, that that visualization. So you know, a couple years ago, yeah, a couple years ago, I, I shot uh, single stack nationals, and I was squatted with um, like Latham. I was on the super squad and whatnot, hmm. and I had not practiced at all for that match. Like I I went out and I just like sighted in my gun, right, shot right, maybe like fifty right. rounds or so, right? But I, yeah. my schedule was so busy and everything that I was just like, all right, I'm just gonna go out there and just shoot what I can, and. The entire match, I was actually, not that I wasn't focused when I was shooting, because obviously I'm taking it serious, but for the most part, like, it would just end up being like, at the end of every stage, me and Rob would run up to the iPad and be like, who who won? <laughs> oh, Rob, I beat you, you know? And then whenever Rob would win, he'd be like, yeah. how, McLean, how'd yeah. you let an old fat guy beat you, right? Like, right. it was always this, this crap talking back and forth. Yeah. And I ended up that match taking third. It was the first time I ever podiumed at Nationals wow. with single stack, and... I was so in shock because I was like, what happened? Like, I didn't not, you know, physically, I didn't go to the range and practice and train because I couldn't. My schedule wouldn't allow it. But like somehow I came here and because I was so relaxed and like you said, I didn't show up with this expectation of I have to do good. I just showed up yeah. with like, yeah, I'm just going to shoot my game and, yeah. you know, whatever. I'm here to have fun and we're going to we're going to do it. And take. And the following year, I shot twenty five hundred rounds in preparation for single stack nationals to take 12th <laughs> well you know, and like you said i showed up and i was like i i had that mental ex expectation of performing well and just completely and utterly dragged me down every stage was like a battle trying to get through it yeah you, you dropped anchor way early and you had to pull it I'm, I'm, i basically showed up at the match with the anchor down yeah you did you, you had to you had to pull that you had an expectation along with it on every stage uh I tell you, I had I had a little conversation with Lones Wigger. I don't know if you knew who Lones Wigger was. Mm -mm. And I and I, I would want the audience, if you're listening to this podcast, to look up Lones Wigger. If there was ever a, a competitive shooting champion, Lones Wigger was. Uh, he was iconic, small bore, three position rifle shooter. Uh, he medaled more than any U.S. athlete in history. I had to, had a chance to talk to him. He used to shoot uh, Sportsman Team Challenge. That's why I met him years ago in Florida. And I had, right before he passed away a few years ago, I asked him about burnout. You know, what do, mm. what do you do about burnout? Because Lone Wigger was one of them guys, first to the range and last guy to leave. He truly was a dedicated, he, that's why he won all the, all, all the medals. So I was, right, asking, right. I was asking him about burnout. And his, he told me that a, a, a good coach will tell you when you need to back off. And if, you, if you're like me and you never were coached at anything and you're your own coach, you have to develop a system to prevent burnout. Uh, you have to leave a little meat on the bone before you go to the range. If you accomplish it before you go there, 
you already ate it. There's no, there's no meat on that bone. You already picked it. So when you got to the match, you already done dropped that anchor at the practice ring, mm. but you didn't realize it yet. That's the hardest thing in the world to do is leave, is leave a little bit of meat on the bone so you stay hungry on the range and try to get it instead of having, having eaten it in practice. I know that sounds kind of childish, and, but I'm trying to put it in very simple terms, and that's what life is. It's simple. If you, you, we make it hard, but it's very simple. And once you've accomplished an expectation in practice and you've repeated it and you've repeated it, when you got to the match, now you're bored with it. And you try to exceed that, and, you, and that's a level you've never gone, and you're not going to do it. And you collapse, the anchor comes down, and you, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to learn when you, when you, when you need to back off. The ego is the worst thing. It wants to pull you and pull and pull. So it's hard, it's hard to do that. Uh, that's what makes it fun, mind game. Yo, you're absolutely – and it's, it's, it's hard to explain to some people or, or maybe comprehend, I guess, for some people too, because it's also a mindset thing, right? Like, so some person, one person might have an experience like that, like they, they accomplish what they wanted to in training. Now they feel ready and then they just crash and burn yeah. in, in, yeah. when it comes time to perform. And that is such a dejecting feeling that they never try again versus the person that has that same experience, but they take that lesson to heart and they go, okay, what lesson do I need to learn so that I don't let it happen again? And, and it, there's, it can either snuff your fire or it can fuel it. <laughs> ego, right? ego is a terrible thing. Big head. Big, <laughs> I, I call it big head. You know, when you get big head, you, yeah. Oof, oof. It's to be avoided. It's yeah. to be avoided. <laughs> and 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 I think I think humbling experiences are important to have from time to time. Um, it's it's good to be knocked down back to earth and reminded that oh, yeah. uh, you're not a superhuman and and all that kind of stuff. So now you've been shooting for quite a long time, and now we're talking about burnout. What else do you do outside? I, I know, obviously, there's shooting, but like shooting matches specifically, you can't be doing that full time. There's always got to be something else that you do. So. Other than shooting matches, what are some of the other things you like to do to help uh, re, re reinvigorate yourself? I'm a, I'm a tinkerer, you know. I, I work on just about anything broken. Uh, I came from a multi-craft mechanic background. So when I was a multi-craft mechanic, we had to be a machinist. You had to be a welder. You had to be a pipe fitter. You had to be, you had to be anything. When you, when you had to work on it to go work on something, it was anything from a doorknob to a 4,000 horsepower steam turbine. So I just like working on things. It's, it's you know, tractors. I've, I've got like 13 pieces of equipment that I maintain here around the property, my cars. Uh, I just like working on stuff. So guns to me are just uh, another tool. I look at it as a, I need to, you know, I like to reload. I know a lot of people don't, but I find it fascinating. I, I just take guns out, just have, try to just have fun with them and not work. Fortunate for me, I live on a range, so I can go on a 400-yard rifle range and, and play games and just relax and shoot like when I was a kid. You know, when you, when you got your first BB gun, just go out and have some fun. Uh, and, then, mm -hmm. and then the work aspect of it, where you, where you do drills. and But just being around the house and just, uh, just, just being a guy, you know, working on stuff. Good, good with me, you know. So what's, what's one of the coolest things that uh, you've – either built or restored? Well, I had a, when I got out of high school, uh, I bought a 72 Ford Bronco. 
back in 1975, and it was a, it was really ratty at the time. Somebody had really knocked all the guts out of that thing. So I spent I spent a lot of time rebuilding it. That was, that was when four wheel driving was just starting to get into its own, and uh, uh-huh. that, that thing was in, Ford Bronco back then was a piece of trash to tell you honest. It was a piece of tin on the chassis, but anyway, the back of it had rusted off. So I I went to a junkyard and bought another one and cut it in half and acetylene welded it with coat hangers, put another body together and uh, lifted it and uh, built drive shafts for it and axle shafts even. And uh, yeah, I did a lot of settling welding and just uh, being a mechanic, we built the engine, the transmission, uh, the front and rear differential, putting different gear sets in it. So just working on stuff, uh, I find it relaxing. It keeps you engaged. And uh, yeah, nothing like building your own motor and listening to it run. Had an old 302 in it. We kind of hopped it up a little bit, you know, and dual point distributor and all that kind of good stuff. Cam. Yeah, it was fun. See, I, I feel like I feel like building or rebuilding a car is something every guy should have the opportunity to do, um, and unfortunately, like I I don't have the time, money, or resources to just go and buy a junker and start you know buying new parts for it and replacing it and all that kind of stuff. But even, even the idea of like, yeah. well, we're, we're, you know, all these people in, in oh, go ahead. Well, we were kids when we first got our bicycles. I guess we were eight, 10 years old. We'd go drive to subdivision to find these old lawnmowers people were throwing away. And we'd drag them back with our, with our bicycles and put the engine parts together and see if we could get one running, you know, and just, just <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Just... See, but like, I, like, even in my high school back in Vegas, like, there was no such thing as machine shop. I think they had a woodworking class, but even then, like, I don't even think it was like a class you could take for credit. It was like, yeah. an extracurricular activity that yeah. you can do. And I feel like that's something that was severely lacking in my childhood of the fact that, like, yeah, I took health class where they told me, you know, <laughs> don't eat crap. Well, and, you know, well, we had, uh, but South Louisiana, uh, is, is heavy in the industry. Of course, even, even by the coastline, you know, the shipyards were really big when I was a kid. So most people that, that you've met in, in, in my, uh, strata of, people, you know, were either ship welders or fitters or worked at a, a chemical plant or there was some industry related job. So everybody had welding machines and, you know, uh, we built our own little P-Rog, motorized P-Rog to hunt ducks out of, loaded our own shotgun shells and just, uh, you just, you just did, you just did what you needed to do to have fun. We, if you wanted to go to have fun, you built it, you know, build your P-Rog, put, a, put an eight horsepower bridge and stratton direct drive through the bottom make a little mud boat, go to the swamp, you know, load your own shells, shoot some ducks, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's, that's my point is that I, I don't think kids or even like the, the teens of this age would have that ability. Like maybe, maybe where depending on very dependent upon where you're located. Yeah. You, Cause like I can tell you right now, this, the kids in Vegas, they, they probably wouldn't even understand how to use a payphone if you put one in front of them, right? They'd be like, "Well, where do I tap my credit card, or where do I like? How do I make a call on this thing?" And it's it's, oh gosh, you know this this stuff like this that makes you know, me feel old. Is when I say like yeah, it's sad. Yeah, you know, I was I was building my own guns. I got a record attempt coming up with Smith and Wesson here next week, and uh, I, I built my own revolvers for it. I cut cut the ratchets and you know fitted the cylinders and the, the barrel liners and everything and uh, but going back to that, you know, when we were kids, I think one of the most exciting things when you're, when you're playing with those old lawnmowers is to get one running. You know, we put them all in together mm-hmm. and 
we didn't know anything about an engine and then you get one running just the sound of that thing you would like you put a life into it and it's just you know fascinating and uh so you want to do more of that kind of stuff and got the you know car engine and v8s and yeah so it's pretty pretty cool it's a, it's, it's being self-reliant it's like a ken tap moment you know uh so which is which is what's lacking i think a lot of in today is the the inability for people to have that self-reliance they always got to be looking for reassurance from someone else or from assistance with you know whether or not it's government or anything like that and it's just kind of like man that's why that's one of the reasons why i, I was so excited about mo moving to missouri to get into right. hunting yeah was because i was like you know yeah. with covid taking place and like yeah. with, with what we saw happen with the grocery stores and the yeah. meat and stuff i was like holy crap like it, i have no way of procuring food for my family i have no knowledge of how to do that so by getting yeah. into hunting was kind of like this is a way for me to learn how to provide food outside of the typical grocery store mm -hmm. you know pathway yeah. and all that kind of stuff and and uh yeah i feel like that's something that's just very lacking in in our society today is that that desire to be self-reliant with like i mean granted we're creatures of habits yeah. and and humans are fantastic at being and and improving on laziness right like there's a reason why we live in houses it's because cabins sucked yeah. and then there's a reason we started building cabins it's because yeah. caves sucked yeah. and the reason yeah. we started staying yeah. in caves was yeah. because being yeah. out in the open yeah. sucked oh, so yeah. we, we love trying to make things easier for ourselves but in in the process of making it easier you also kind of uh handcuff yourself to the the simple things or you get more reliant on others but more reliant on others and you well, get lazy well, that too, you know, it's, 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 too. it's fun to do your own thing and be reliant uh on your on your that's what mm -hmm. one thing i really i didn't think i would enjoy it as much as when i quit my full-time job and i started working for myself uh i found it to be a great relief uh i didn't have to carry anybody other's weight uh, when i look in the mirror in the morning if i wanted to earn an extra buck this is the guy i gotta go do it you know so and uh, yep. it just it just puts more more of you into your life if you don't like something well go change it you don't have to do it that way you know yeah so, you're yeah. absolutely right there's I, i've recently started trying to to build holsters and stuff and like you said there's there's some days where it's like boy if you if you, you want some extra cash you better start talking to some people and ask if they if there's anything you can yeah, make for them and you know stuff like that it's, like, it's more gratifying that's, that's, you know you did mm -hmm. it on your own you earned it you earned that mark if i gave you a hundred dollars it doesn't mean that much if you earned it 50 cents an hour it's gonna mean a whole lot more to you so yep it's way the world that's way the world true now, speaking of hunting, obviously, uh, being in the firearms world and being down in Louisiana and all kind of stuff, uh, hunting, I'm sure, is a big part of your life. And you you and Kay just recently got to go on a pretty awesome hunt. Why don't we uh, – let's talk a little bit about yeah. what uh, what you accomplished there. Or actually, well, you can talk about what you accomplished, but I know in reality we should be bragging about what Kay accomplished because hers was bigger than Yeah, yours. we were invited to <laughs> uh, on a black bear hunt. We went to Alberta, Canada. It's the first time I've ever hunted a black bear. And Kay really harvested a really nice one. I mean, it was it was nice, and it was we hunted for like six seven days, and it was going on day five or six. I hadn't I hadn't even made a shot yet, and I uh, finally took one. And then on the last day, as most hunts go, the last day on the last thirty minutes of the legal shooting time, 
a really nice bear came out and I'll never take him. So I had, I had two black bears. K, of course, Case was bigger than mine, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was so, fun. So, First time I've had so, a chance to, to, to hunt him, so. And 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 we talked about this at the Zombie in the Heartland match. Um, what were what were some of the cool things that you learned about hunting black bears while you were out there having that experience? Um, I was really glad I went in a brown blind. Uh, uh, man, that that one I took that last one on the last day. He was such a big dominant male. He came in there to to run another two off, and the first thing he did, he looked at me in that tree stand and started snapping his teeth. And it made me realize this thing's bigger and better than me in this world. <laughs> That's really the first time I've ever, I've ever hunted something like it, actually. And I've messed with alligators, you know, since I was a kid. But you, I've been around them, so I knew what to know what to do and not not to do. But that black bear was a new experience. And he can climb a tree pretty quick. So him looking at me and snapping his teeth made me realize, you know, I might be Johnny on the spot here. So it was a different feeling. But it was good to be in the you, woods up north. The first time I had a chance to be in the woods up that way. Uh, it's cool. after, after having that experience of like, oh my gosh, that, that thing can literally turn me into a rag doll if he wants to. Um, yeah. did, that, did that hurt or help a desire to be like, I'd hunt, I'd hunt black bears again? Like, do you now feel like, no, I'm good. I experienced it. I'm, I'm good. Or are you kind of like, that was, that was kind of fun. I think I'd try that again. I would like to hunt him again, yeah. It's like anything. Uh, uh, just gotta respect what you're what you're after. We were in the woods here back just the other day. Uh, well, yesterday, buddy. Two of my friends came over getting ready to go to Icor, the Revolver Championship, and we were walking behind the 400 yard berms. I was showing them where they had a, one of the feral pigs was was cutting up back there in a in a mud hole, and we started walking. And I told my I told my buddy from New Zealand, they don't have snakes in New Zealand. I said uh, this is a good spot for a water box. I said we didn't go. Five feet, and he hollered, "Snake, snake!" And he he flushed up a nice water moccasin, and it would look like I placed it there right on command. But it was a good spot. And if you know, if you if you if you're kind of familiar with where you are, uh, I've walked the woods enough. I know spots where water moccasins like to hang out, and that was a good spot. And he was there, so I'm sure it's like that with black bears. You get into a spot that would be a good spot for a bear. You got to keep your eyes open, and uh, if you don't have that knowledge, you might just walk into one. So. Oh, that's for sure. So I, I hate nope. I, I am all for staying as far away from nope ropes as far as I can. Like I, snakes and me just do not. It says so in the Bible that they are the devil. So you have to respect that. Louisiana, <laughs> but Louisiana was full of them, so it was it was very common. But here we have a we have a good bit of copperheads and uh, water moccasins, but you just gotta watch your way. You, you kind of get an idea where they are. So. Well, and, you know, so coming from Vegas, they're the, the biggest thing you have to worry about are rattlesnakes, right? But you you kind of know when you're near a rattlesnake because it warns you. Like, uh, you start hearing it. You're like, oh, I know that sound. Okay, I need yeah. to just open my eyes, look around, assess, figure out where I'm at and where the sound's yeah. coming from back out. When, when we first moved here, I was out uh, with Kelly at one of the properties we were hunting, just kind of cutting out some shooting lanes because some of the, you know, the brush and the trees and stuff had grown over and whatnot. So I'm, I'm whacking away at limbs and stuff. And I turn around to ask her a question. I didn't realize that uh, right in front of me, I just stepped over a big old honking snake just coiled up. And it wasn't, it was too cold. So it's not like it was really going to move or do anything with yeah. me. But the fact that I looked like it was after I had just completely walked past him 
that I turned around that I realized I was like, what? Why does it look like there's a big pile of crap coiled up on the ground? And then I was like, yeah. oh, that's a very big black snake that yeah. I did not see or recognize. <laughs> like, yeah, like you said, it's, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't looking for it. Like, I didn't he, understand. He, uh, he did his job well. Yeah. He didn't move. Yeah, exactly. And and I did not do my job well. <laughs> he didn't give you a visual. So. Yeah, that um, is different. Now, you had a you had a funny story you told me about the black bear and a Coke can or a Coke bottle. Was that what it was? Yeah, water bottle. Water bottle, that's right. Well, so why don't you tell everyone about that? Because I, th- I think that's a funny story for, for people to hear about the kind of interactions you can have with wildlife. I think it was the third day of the hunt, and I hadn't really seen anything in this mid-sized black bear came out and uh first thing he does he looks looks up at me in that tree stand and i'm thinking well this is kind of weird so next thing i know he's climbing the stand he's climbing up the tree i'm i'm up i'm going this ain't cool so he's about halfway up i i I was digging in my pack my backpack i got a water bottle and i (laughs) i lined it up and i dropped it hit him on the head with it and he looked at that thing on the ground and he got down on the ground and started playing with it. And uh, he was intrigued with that thing. He started playing with that water bottle for about uh, 30 minutes and then another bear showed up by his size and they were both playing with that water bottle. And periodically they would look up at me in that tree. I'm going, hmm, I'm out of water. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do if they come back. And uh, so we had a, we had a standoff. They, they played a while and they left, fortunately. But... Uh, they were a little bit smaller to take, so I didn't want to shoot one of them. Mm-hmm. It was kind of intriguing that, uh, and then I watched them later in the week where I, where I saw another one, and uh, they want to play with everything. They had a little a placard on a, on a sign that, that designated the uh, stand by law, and he would climb that tree and paw at it, and they just want to play, fortunately, but not with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? There's... Oh, yeah. like I said, they they could literally turn you into a rag doll. Uh, they like, have the horsepower. Yep, and it's like and the speed. Yeah, and, and, and the they speed. don't even have to try. Like to to them, like them playing is oh, death yeah. for us. Yeah, yeah that's you, you. That's like that alligator. They look pretty docile till you get them, till you get that mouth working, and then it's all it's all uh, it's all go. You know, they they that there's not much middle ground when you get one aggravated. So. I'm sure it's like that way with a bear, you know, <laughs> get on yeah. the <laughs> Oh, I can't, I can't even, what there was, cause there was, there was a video that just came out not too long ago of like some uh, motocross guys that ended up getting chased by a bear. Cause they like zipped right yeah. past his cave, revving their yeah. engines and stuff. And you're just like, yep. See, just like that. He didn't have a motorcycle to jump on, but he still caught up to you. So what's that tell you? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know they can run like a horse. A lot longer than you can. Yeah, and then and then the you, know, you just pay attention, like you said, because there. Have you ever seen the video of the skier? She's um she's got a GoPro that she's holding on to, and I don't know if she's skiing or snowboarding, but basically she's got her goggles on, she's got her headphones, and she's singing along to some pop song, and she's got her GoPro in front of her, and she's just skiing down the mountain. And then next thing you know, in the video, she never realizes that she's being chased by a bear. Like this bear is running full speed behind her, trying to catch right. her and eat her, and she's just sitting there bopping along to her little pop tunes in her in her headphones. And you're like, ah, gotta pay attention, man. Oh, that. Oh. Yeah, that, that, oh, yeah, it'll get you in trouble driving too. You know, you're not listening. You gotta have your ears open. 
Yeah, yep, absolutely. You go out in the woods, you're just another food item for something else. Yeah, and luckily, like, where, where I'm at here in Missouri, like, there's not too much around here. There's been a few bear sightings, but nothing really close. Um, we've got coyotes. I think that's probably about the worst thing that, that you can get out here. Uh, they, they do have, like, cottonmouths and stuff like that, but you got to be around swampy areas. And luckily, the, the property I'm hunting now does not have any swamp near it. So I think I'm good with nope ropes there. But coming yeah. coming into the hunting world and, like, the idea of, all right, so you want to – you want to hike in nice and slow and quiet, get into your spot, get up in the tree before the sun comes up, and then just sit still and shut up and wait for things to happen around you kind of thing. Well, I learned very quickly that it's not that I'm afraid of being in the dark. I'm afraid that I'm not alone in the dark. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the dark won't hurt you. Unless yeah. You, unless you stand or sit on something you're not supposed to. Well, and the, and the first time I ever spooked a deer out of its bedding area, hiking in while it was pitch black, I, I'm not going to lie. If I had a heart rate monitor on, it probably would have assumed I was having some sort of cardiac event because it scared the yeah. living bejesus out of me when, when yeah. that deer jumped out of there. I was like, oh, oh, okay, I don't know if this hunting thing really is for me. Maybe I'll just wait until the sun comes up. <laughs> but, well, I, had a, I had a similar experience. I was, I was frogging. <clears throat> and that little homemade boat of mine, the rudder fell off of it. And I'm I'm in water past my waist, and I found that old rudder, and I'm sticking it back through the pulley, and I'm trying to get a cotter pin back through the cable guide, and so I can get it hooked back up. And uh, behind me, I was this is like one o'clock in the morning. I'm a couple of miles back in a swamp, and and uh, I hear this roar behind me, and I thought it was a bear. And before I knew it, I was standing back in a boat. I don't know how I got there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I've ever heard a, heard heard an alligator roar. Big male, their territorial thing sounded like a bear. First time I'd heard one, but uh, it was close enough where it really spooked me. It's one of them. Yeah, I had the hard monitor on. It would have been pegged out. Because <laughs> I daydreaming, thinking about catching frogs, and I wasn't thinking about alligators. And that thing lit up behind me. And it was there. <sighs> but, yeah, quite quite interesting for a moment. Quite interesting. <laughs> oh gosh, no, I um, <laughs> I was always scared would... to step on it, but I never, you know. But uh, unfortunately, I'm smart enough not to do that. Yeah, no, I see. I'm, I've I've seen too many horror films with with water and and animals that like the you said. So there I was, waist deep in water at one o'clock in the morning, and that already for me was like, nope, ain't gonna be me. That would not be me. I took all the safety precautions. Reached the tire, tire, tire the ankles of your tie your uh, your your jeans off at the bottom so the leeches don't come up your pant leg. Mm -hmm. So I had that done, so I was safe. I, <laughs> <laughs> you were you were invincible. Nothing could get you. I was you. good to go, brother. I was good. So. <laughs> no leeches on me. <laughs> oh Jesus! All right. Yeah. No. That. Uh, no. Waste. Waste deep in swamp water. No thanks. I guess I'll just. I guess I'll just. Uh, like like you said before. Well, I guess this boat's my new home. I better figure out how to survive in it. <laughs> we were we were we were frogging on I ten. I don't know if you passed on I ten going toward New Orleans. They were just building that road, <clears throat> and they had uh, they had some drainage ditches in there. We were frogging. We had rode bicycles down that down that right away. But anyway, we were. <laughs> I'm off in the swamp there, going to one of these cuts, and uh, when I got in there, the, the, the water looked about this deep, but it was actually on my chin. By the time I got in there, and uh, 
<laughs> shine off to the side, there's an alligator. And I'll shine off to the other side, there's another <laughs> Nope. <laughs> there's another one. It was kind of cool being eye level with them, going through that muck. It was, uh, yeah, pretty fun. You want to get, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> that that's how that's how you know you're built differently than me is the fact that you said that was kind of cool and I'm like I should have worn my brown pants. Yeah, it was just it was, yeah. I didn't realize they were there until I got in until I got in there with them. But they were they were they were interested in other things, so oh, well so we, we just went on a trip to um to Gulf Shores down in Alabama and we went to a place called Alligator Alley. Um yeah. And my, it, it's so comical. My three-year-old man, she certain things she'll she wants nothing to do with, and other things she is gung ho about. Man, we we showed up there. One of the staff had pulled a, a one-year-old baby alligator out, taped taped its mouth, and was just out standing around. And if anyone wanted to take a pic, dude, she beelined it to this lady, put her arms out, and she was like, "Give me, like, I want to hold that alligator." I was just like. I was questioning whether or not I wanted to touch it, but she was just like, yep, bring it here. This thing is awesome. You know, it's like, oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Like they're, yeah they're, they're an interesting critter. They are. They've been around a long time. They're going to be here after we're gone. Yeah. They won't still have them, so. I would agree with that for sure. Survival. Yeah, it was it was cool. We got to to go around. We bought like a little bucket of like the feeding stuff, so you just throw it in the water and watch them come through. And and we got to see some of the bigger ones, like the the fifteen feet, that's, fifteen footers, and and just like oh, that's a big honking animal. That's one thing you learn when you walk the swamp is where where there's alligator holes, because they'll make a hole that might be twenty feet deep, and you'll be trudging along in you know, water a half a foot foot deep, and you step in that alligator hole, of course you you'll be swimming. So you, you kind of get a feel for where they're going to be and what kind of terrain they like to make a nest or, or a hole. And you try to avoid them, of course. And especially if you're hunting, you just got hip boots on. You don't want to get wet when it's cold. So you got to watch, kind of watch where you're walking. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a lot more studying <laughs> that I need to do here in the Missouri. I, I really need to familiarize because I, I feel like a lot of my fear that I have of like snakes and stuff like that is just out of ignorance. I just don't know, like, you know, it's, I'm not afraid of getting bit by a snake. I'm afraid of dying from a snake bite. <laughs> That's what I'm afraid of, right? Like, if it, if it's non-venomous and the snake bites me, it's like, well, that kind of sucks. But, like, my my fear would be like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Oh, what? Oh, what? yeah. You know, well, like... That's, yeah. 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 That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good reaction. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, being, being afraid is good. It kind of makes you fast and makes you defensive and stuff. But uh, I also don't like I like it was it was interesting when when I had that experience and I stepped over that snake, I had a internal struggle battle with myself being like, do you still want to be out here? Like, imagine coming out here at night and that thing is is, you know, on the way between you and your tree stand. Are you going to be OK with the fact that you stepped over it, potentially step on it? Da, da, da. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, all right, you just got to get over this. It's either it's either going to be something that's going to paralyze yeah. you with fear yeah. or just need to accept that it's there. Learn, learn more about it. Well, and you, how to avoid having that? You had, you, had a, you had a learning moment. You you saw the terrain he was located in, and that's probably where he's going to be again in a terrain that looks that way. So you've got some knowledge now. You're not going to do that again. Yep. <laughs> that yeah, because it was it was it was right 
around a downed tree. Exactly. So there was plenty of, of sticks and branches for oh, it yeah. to hide in and yeah. curl up in and all kind of stuff. And so, yeah, like, like you yeah. said, now it's like when I see those trees, it's, yeah. it, it's not necessarily that I'll avoid them. If, if I have to cross one, then I will. But I know what to, to right. avoid yeah. about that aspect, right? Yeah. So, so you learn. That's how you learn. You didn't get bent, so you got a lot, of smart, you got a lot smarter for free. <laughs> didn't cost you any pain or agony and uh so that's part of the yeah you chalk that up to experience and you keep your eyes open and you see that kind of terrain you know uh what might be in there yeah so yep what is it good good choices come from experience and experience well that comes from making bad choices yeah you learn (laughs) you learn Awesome. Right on. Well, uh, let's, let's do this. Uh, we're, we're coming up in about an hour and 10 minutes or so. I'm sure you probably got some stuff you got to get taken care of. So I like to do a couple little like fast fire questions okay. just to kind of round off the podcast and All then right. we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up for you. So, um, the first question that I have for you is if you had to pick, would you choose a hot dog or a burger? Uh, burger, burger, burger. hamburger or cheeseburger, <clears throat> hamburger, hamburger, no, no cheese, no cheese. <laughs> okay copy that <laughs> all right if if your profession was acting would you rather be a comedian in a serious film or a serious actor in a comedy film i'd rather be a comedian in a serious film why why would you go that route i just think it'd be more fun you could you, uh-huh. you could be more natural and and it, probably you could get away with more you could improvise improvise more you get away with it Okay, I can see that. All right. Would you rather eat for free or pay for everything, but you wouldn't gain any weight? Wow. Well, it would probably be the latter. Yeah. Yeah, pay for it and not gain weight. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that question, when I, was, when I was writing it out, I was like, I don't know how I would answer this one. That's going to yeah. be a tough one. But. Yeah, it is a tough one. If you could put so much into it, yeah. Yeah. If you were going to start a band, what kind of music would you want to play? Oh, that's probably a country. Yeah. yeah. Country? Okay. Yeah. If if you were going to start a band, what instrument would you play? Whew. If you like, if you could instantaneously be like, I want to learn this instrument, and you knew it, what would the instrument be? Probably be, be a drum. Really? Yeah. What? What? I mean, you know, drummers like stay on the back of the stage and hardly get any chicks, typically, right? <laughs> <laughs> that might be a good thing in in, in the long run. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Actually, that was one. Th- I I actually started when I when I got into music. I actually started on drums, yeah. and then I realized, hey, it kind of sucks being back here, yeah. and, and so I swapped over to guitar. But because um, I I just don't have the believe it or not, I don't have the best singing voice in the world. I start singing, and people think that uh, someone's hitting a <laughs> swinging a bag of cats against the wall. Yeah, yeah I hear you. so. All right, and then the last question would be: Would you rather have perfect eyesight or perfect hearing? Perfect eyesight. I figure that'd be it. You don't necessarily need to hear in order to shoot guns, but uh, eyesight <laughs> is pretty good. important. That pretty good. <laughs> That's something you miss as you get older. Eyesight. I I can say like I I'm again not to say that I'm old, but like it's. I'm starting to notice things where I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't used to have to do that. Like 
on second thought that that larger text does look a little bit more comfortable to read and <laughs> like, oh you, gosh maybe you have to use these <laughs> yeah with the yeah. <laughs> oh man all right well jerry again thank you so much at this at this point what i like to do is i like to hand the floor over to you so if you've got anything you want to say if you've got any foundations you want to talk about any wow. uh any promotional things or sponsors you want to thank then i i basically leave this last portion up to you to yeah. say whatever it is you need to say so go for well, it that's that's a big topic i'd give a shout out to roy jinks uh roy jinks was the company historian he founded team smith and wesson and without Roy picking me as a team member, I'm the only original team member left on Team Smith & Wesson. And without Roy Jenks having the insight to have a professional team, I would have never have gotten into pro shooting. So here I am 33 years later. Thank you, Roy Jenks. Well, I guess the rest of the shooting world has to has to thank you for that, or thank him yeah. for that too, because uh, so you, you've brought a lot to the world and of shooting and um, even entertainment. All right. Well, Jerry, thank you so much again yeah. for being on the podcast. I really appreciate yeah. it. For anyone that's interested in following Jerry, um, Instagram, Twitter, and all that, it's just going to be at Jerry Michalek. Um, and you can also find him on YouTube, which is Jerry Michalek Pro Shooter for his channel. He's got some great, great stuff. to. I, he's going to be the reason you're up at 2 o'clock in the morning strolling through the next video <laughs> because you just keep watching video after video. So I'm just going to put that little disclaimer out there. If you got, if you know, If you don't have work in the morning, then – check out some of the stuff that he's got so um but again jerry uh, thank you so much for coming on the show i really do appreciate it and uh i, I look forward to seeing you at, uh, at some more matches coming you up well. had fun thank you awesome guys thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of open action with john mclean brought to you by arms core make sure you subscribe and get ready to to watch all the other upcoming episodes and until next time we'll see you later got him